One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases. And it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. Hey guys, welcome back. So we're uh, still talking about cholesterol and cardiovascular risk. Um, today I want to talk about understanding cholesterol tests. Uh, you know, in the, in the last episode, I tackled this idea that statin, statin drugs may not be as beneficial for preventing death from heart disease to the extent that most people think that they do. Um, and I pointed out that historically deaths from heart disease were already trending down about 20 years before the first statin drug became available. And the main driver of those that reduced rate in deaths from cardiovascular disease was the large number of people who stopped smoking in the 60s and, and in the 70s. Um, plus the fact that the 70s was kind of a pivotal decade where a large number of people embraced exercise as a lifestyle. Prior to the 70s, like people didn't jog, they didn't lift weights. The, they didn't, you know, do yoga, for example, or Pilates to the extent that they do now. And and so in the 60s and 70s, fewer people were smoking, more people were exercising and, and across a large population, that's a really good shift. So along comes the first statin drug in 1987. And for the next 25 years, statin drugs have gained such popularity that that uh, and common usage that they are the number one selling drug category um, over the last 25 years. In fact, the number one drug period in the last 24 years is the statin drug Lipitor. And just to give you some numbers to think about, um, in the United States, sales of Lipitor from 1992 to 2017 is, is a whopping $95 billion. That's a lot of money, right? And in 2022, the global total sale of all statins, that's all statins around the world, um, is $15 billion a year. That was as of 2022. And, you know, it's interesting because if you go to Pfizer's website, they're the ones who make Lipitor. Their own literature states that the reason for a doctor to prescribe Lipitor is to treat high cholesterol and to reduce the risk of heart attack and stroke. But as I explained last time, there's this concept of the number needed to treat. And as a class of statin drugs, um, and, and as a class, I should say, if statin drugs have a very high number needed to treat, meaning that a lot of people who take statins don't receive any benefit, and it seems statistically that someone is actually more likely to experience side effects than actually preventing death, you know, these side effects are like muscle damage and pain, elevated liver enzymes, and, you know, even type 2 diabetes. And it's very interesting that on Pfizer's own website, it, it says that Lipitor is to be used as an adjunct or in addition to diet therapy, meaning that people shouldn't be using statin drugs without employing things like diet and exercise changes first. But you know that most people who are already not eating well and not exercising, who have high cholesterol and maybe have additional risk factors for heart disease, they're much more willing to take a pill for life than they are to eat right and to move well. and But that's not how these meds are actually supposed to be used, according to Pfizer's own websites, but this is how they are used. 
Um, in fact, I distinctly remember a client of mine many years ago who was on metformin for type 2 diabetes when she came to see me. And she shared with me that her MD told her that as long as she took her diabetes pill, metformin, um, she could eat cake, as much cake and ice cream as she wanted, right? Which is bloody ridiculous, to be honest. But like I said, for some people, it's just easier to take a pill than it is to, to do the hard work of changing what landed them in the, in the bad spot to begin with. But that's a losing uphill battle because one compromise like that leads to another. And soon you go from taking one medication to two or three or even more. And in reality, about 65% of the U.S. population takes at least one medication. And the average U.S. adult is on four medications. And that number obviously goes higher for some people. I would propose to you that the more meds that you're on is a reflection of one, perhaps of several things. Number one, it could be the fact that your doctors don't really care about root cause. They're just focused on symptom control and maybe changing your labs to make the numbers inside the reference range. Or perhaps they don't understand the nature of the problem. They're just using medications to do what they can. Um, most of them certainly aren't interested in the relationship between diet lifestyle and the environment on your health. And I know that this is probably going to sound harsh, but you know, maybe it reflects your own misperceptions or worse, your own unwillingness to change how you think and what you do for yourself. And yeah, I, I know that sounds harsh, but I'm, I'm hoping that just the fact that you're listening to this podcast says that you're not really in that category, that you're, you are willing to embrace the changes as difficult as they might be. So, you know, before you say yes to another prescription that you have to be on long term, think twice about what that actually means about your mindset and your overall approach to health or the attitude of your doctor. You know, are you really managing symptoms and managing disease or are you engaging in true health care and are you building wellness? Those are completely different things. Let me go back to what Pfizer's website says about statins being an adjunct or additional therapy to support diet. This implies a few things. Number one, it implies that dietary cholesterol contributes significantly to your blood cholesterol and therefore your cardiovascular disease risk. That's not necessarily true. Um, second, it implies that cholesterol is the causative agent in heart disease, specifically plaque formation. And third, it ignores the potential causes of heart disease that have little or nothing to do with diet or cholesterol. But before I explain that, let me back up just a little bit and go into the big picture because I, I just realized I even talk, haven't even talked about cholesterol itself, right? Because it's not the boogeyman. In fact, cholesterol plays several critical roles in human health and function. First off, let me tell you that the majority of cholesterol in your blood is from what you make in your liver, and it's not from what you eat in your diet. The estimates are that dietary cholesterol accounts for somewhere around 20%. Estimates vary depending on what sources you read, but somewhere around 20% of your total cholesterol. Um, and for most people, eating more or less cholesterol-rich foods won't change your blood levels of cholesterol all that much. There do, so, there do seem to be some hyper-responders who might change their diet and see more of a change than the average person, but they're the exception and they're not necessarily the rule. And so in that sense, uh, most people who avoid things like eggs or shrimp or bacon, which are classically touted as high cholesterol foods, won't really see their total cholesterol change much, if at all. And again, 
That's because most of the cholesterol that's in your body is what you make. And that cholesterol is then used to make some pretty cool things, right? So the first thing that is that cholesterol is, uh, it's a molecule that we use to create our stress-adapting hormone cortisol, as well as all of your reproductive hormones, right? So cortisol, progesterone, estrogen, testosterone. So, but there's, there's a threshold below which if your cholesterol drops, where you're likely to start to see early signs of hormonal imbalances. And that number is going to be likely very different for everybody because we're all individuals, but in our functional medicine circles, we start thinking about whether or not someone has uh, a cholesterol level of, of at or below 50, uh, which is about 3.8 if you're using um, European units. But basically when someone's cholesterol gets at or below 150, we start looking at that as a pot potential complicating factor in hormone balance and control. And so, you know, key function number one of the cholesterol, most of which we make in our body through the liver, key function number one is contributing to hormone balance. It's the raw molecule that we use to make stress hormones as well as reproductive hormones. The second key function is that the cholesterol is also the base molecule of vitamin D, which itself is critical for things like immune function and control. And, um, you know, that relationship is actually in the name of vitamin D, which is 25-hydroxycholecalciferol, choli as, as, as it relates to cholesterol. Now, if you have a higher cholesterol, that doesn't mean you're going to have higher hormones. It doesn't mean you're going to have higher vitamin D. It doesn't work that way. But it could work the other way. When cholesterol is too low, you can have hormone deficiencies and your vitamin D levels can suffer. So that's the second thing. So first one is hormone balance. Second thing is vitamin D. Third, and maybe the final point that I'll, I'll make about cholesterol, is that it actually is an antioxidant. <laughs> and maybe that's new to you, but yeah, that's right. Cholesterol and cholesterol derivatives actually protect our cells specifically the cells that line your blood vessels. And maybe you're thinking like, oh, wait a minute, I thought cholesterol damages my blood vessels and that's why I get heart disease. Nope, it's actually the opposite. So let me clarify. When something damages your blood vessels on the inside, causing inflammation, cholesterol is called to the site of inflammation to help repair that damage. And in that sense, cholesterol accumulation at the site of a vascular injury is your body's natural response. It is a healing response. But like many problems, normal function can go awry. It can get derailed. And what should happen doesn't, and what shouldn't happen does. But what should happen is that if there's some vascular insult that causes inflammation, cholesterol comes to the site of injury as part of a coordinated response, and the damage gets repaired and everybody goes home right? So there's an injury, there's a response, and then everything kind of goes back to baseline and normal. And so analogy, an analogy that might be useful here, and I've used this, I think, before on the podcast, and if not, you may have heard others because it's a pretty common analogy, but think about firefighters that are responding to a house fire, right? Once the fire is out and people are safe, the firefighters go home. They don't continue to hang around trying to douse a fire that doesn't exist anymore because they've already put out the fire. But they would hang out and keep working if the person who started the fire in the first place sets fire to the neighbor's house as soon as they control the first fire. 
or maybe maybe a better analogy, albeit an imperfect one, would be that as the firefighters douse one part of the fire, the arson sets another one right next to it, such that they can never put the fire out. They just have to stay there and keep trying to control fire after fire after fire. And so what happens in your body when whatever caused the damage to your blood vessels in the first place is never addressed and controlled? While cholesterol has to hang out and has to keep trying to put out the fire. And part of how it does that is by laying down, you know, what someone might call a cholesterol patch. Um, and if that cholesterol patch grows and grows because you never are able to put out the fire, it can eventually plug an artery and, you know, voila, you have a heart attack or you have a stroke. But what happens most often is that when new cholesterol patches form, um, the literature calls this immature plaques, but basically newly formed cholesterol patches have a tendency to split or to fracture Sometimes the piece can break off. And in those cases, what you get is either a localized bleed and a big clot forms or a broken piece of that patch floats downstream to a smaller blood vessel and gets stuck. And again, voila, heart attack or stroke. But it's important to realize and understand that when cholesterol builds up in your blood vessels, it's doing its job. It's acting as an antioxidant which is trying to put out the fire. It's trying to quench the inflammation in the vascular system. In a, an article that was published in 2020, this is in the American Journal of Preventive Cardiology, the article said this, and I'm just going to quote from them directly. Our understanding of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease has evolved from being a disease of passive cholesterol accumulation to a disease that is driven by chronic inflammation, which initiates a series of biochemical and histological phenomena that leads to plaque formation and the triggering of a plaque rupture event, end quote. So we've known, listen, we've known definitively for 20 years that heart disease is about inflammation. But the idea that the, the immune system is involved in heart disease actually goes back a little over 100 years, believe it or not. But the cholesterol narrative has dominated clinical practice and it's drowned out the idea that inflammation is the root cause. In 1991, the medical journal Free Radical Biology and Medicine published another article entitled, and this is the name of, of the article, Another Cholesterol Hypothesis cholesterol as an antioxidant. And in that article, they state that the then focus back in 1991, the focus in 90, 1991 on cholesterol as the driver of heart disease, quote, ignores the essentiality of cholesterol in life processes. And the authors raise the question as to whether or not cholesterol is really causative for heart disease. Now, having said that, we do understand that when cholesterol gets damaged by inflammation, that these products of oxidation can damage blood vessels and they can trigger the entire process. This is why measuring both general markers of inflammation and markers that are more specific to inflammation of blood vessels as part of a comprehensive diagnostic approach can be helpful. And this includes things like oxidized LDL, which you may have heard of, which is 
you know, something more and more labs are making available. Five years ago, 10 years ago, certainly, there was only a couple of labs that tested oxidized LDL. Now pretty much everybody does. It's widely available. But let me go back to that firefighter analogy. Let's say that you're an investigative reporter and your job was to recover, was to cover and report the news that relates to all fires in your community. And year after year, every time you see a fire, you see firefighters. <laughs> now, if you're not very good at your job, you might just start, you might start to think like, hey, every time there's a fire, I see firefighters. And then you could illogically conclude that firefighters are actually causing the fires. They're not just there to fight them. And obviously that's absurd, right? Because they're there to put out the fires and, and they respond to a fire that's already started. Firefighters are the good guys. And it's somewhat the same with cholesterol. You know, in, in the late 1800s, the early 1900s was when we just started to understand the immune system. And every decade our knowledge of that system grows and we're still learning. We know stuff now we didn't know five years ago about the immune system. And most of what we know today about how this system works is from research in the last 20 years or so. But listen, the idea that cholesterol is what causes heart disease started in the early 1900s and that's continued on as the main thought process in medical science. And what's happened is that doctors are blaming the fire on the firefighters. Cholesterol is the guy who's trying to put out the fire, as I mentioned before. The arsonist, so to speak, is the inflammatory process and whatever's triggering that, right? Which means that the best strategy to reduce your risk of heart disease is not to stop eating bacon and eggs, not just take statin drugs, but to find and resolve inflammation wherever it's coming from. So if you think that the way to prevent fires is to get rid of all the firefighters, then, you know, eventually your entire city is going to burn to the ground. But to be fair, we do know that once cholesterol has performed its functions as an antioxidant and an anti-inflammatory, it then has the potential to cause problems. This is the idea of oxidized cholesterol or cholesterol that's been damaged by inflammation. But really, no matter how you slice it, the core problem and the root cause is still inflammation. There are a lot of people with heart disease and clogged arteries that feel perfectly safe taking their statin drugs and having lower cholesterol, but are either blissfully unaware of their inflammation that keeps their risk for heart attack and stroke too high, and that's why there's a large percentage of people hospitalized for heart attacks who have normal cholesterol, but they don't have normal inflammation. So regardless of what you think about cholesterol or statin drugs, the name of the game is inflammation, period. So what's the takeaway? Well, you need cholesterol. You need it for hormone balance. You need it for vitamin D synthesis. You need it for its antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. And to add a couple of more things to that list without going into a lot of detail, unique cholesterol is a key component of the structural membrane that surrounds each of your cells and keeps them healthy, particularly lipid or fat-rich tissue structures like your brain. Plus, cholesterol is also the base molecule for things like bile acids that help you to digest fats and absorb fat-soluble vitamins like vitamins A, D, E, and K. And a very underappreciated function of cholesterol is that it actually binds to toxins 
produced by your liver as well as floating around in your bloodstream so that you can actually get rid of them. It's part of your detoxification capacity. Nobody talks about that one. So there's no shortage of benefits to having adequate cholesterol. But to understand where cholesterol can go wrong, we have to dive into subtypes of cholesterol and what commonly is referred to as good and bad cholesterol or HDL, high-density lipoproteins, and LDL, low-density lipoproteins, respectively. And honestly, like while that's helpful, understand that, that even these subdivisions of total cholesterol have their own subdivisions. And not all what we commonly refer to as bad cholesterol is really bad. <laughs> and there are other things to consider, like whether or not you're in, inflamed. So markers of inflammation like homocysteine or myeloperoxidase or uh, what's called PLA-2. We have to consider how non-cholesterol agents like certain gut bacterial infections can be the source of damage and inflammation that cholesterol is trying to fix. I'm watching my clock here. and I feel like I'm on a roll, but I'm trying to keep these episodes into little kind of bite-sized pieces I realize we haven't even talked about testing, but we'll do that next time and then talk about some of these other aspects right here on the Inflammation Nation. Thanks for sticking around.